Hello and welcome to The Devil's Party, the show where we take the classics of Christian literature and do the unthinkable. We actually read them. Uh, I am Anthony Oliveira, PhD culture critic, dumpster raccoon, and uh, if you're just joining us, I guess, we're in the middle of learning about why Jesus is pissed at some churches. <laughs> uh, before we get going, I want to apologize for the quality of my vocal this week. We live in a time of plague, and I've been hit once again. The little strips say it's not COVID, but who knows? It certainly has been a fun one. So if I have to hit the pause button to cough 6,000 times, I'll edit all of that out for you lovely folks. Um, we are, as I said, in the middle of Jesus's burn book against the seven churches of Asia Minor. Uh, last time we tackled, let me pull out my little clock map that I drew for myself. We did Ephesus, first what stop after you leave Patmos, Smyrna, Pergamum, up at noon, Thyatira, and this week we're going to be doing Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea, one less church and maybe a little less for me to have to summarize, so hopefully I won't have to go as long as I did last time. Sorry about that. Um, worth recapping, probably, uh, or at least reframing in some ways. So I talked about how, like, this is obviously the order you would do these churches in, right? Like, this is, um, if you left Patmos, you went clockwise as a messenger, you'd go in this order, but... As I mentioned last week, there's been a lot of scholarship and uh, pseudo-scholarship over the centuries pointing out that, like, oh, but perhaps there's, like, a secret narrative happening here. And uh, the detailing of that can get quite intense, um, but it is worth, like, sketching the maybe least kooky version of that and then leaning in on some of the kookier ones that I found because uh, they're a lot of fun. Uh, okay, so Ephesus is about the danger of losing the kind of ardency of your first love, right? That's easy to see how that is applicable to the immediate apostolic period, right? Um, Jesus is gone, now what do we do? Then we've got Smyrna, the fear of suffering, right? The martyrdom period that ensues comes after that. That makes sense, right? Uh, Pergamum is about doctrinal compromise, Um and that goes hand-in-hand hand with Thyatira's moral compromise, right? There's a way that some readers love to make this into being about the kind of fusion of church and state under Constantine in Pergamum. Remember, that was the throne of Satan. That was the big temple to Jupiter. Um, and moral compromise they use to kind of explain away basically the entirety of the medieval period. <laughs> um this week's episode is where we get into, and you'll remember a lot of these exegetes are traditionally Protestant, particularly the hotter sort of Protestant, we might call them. We've got a lot of crazy Puritans in the mix. We've got a lot of evangelicals with not a lot of book learning, but an awful lot of opinions who do the rest of the analysis. So this week we're doing Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Sardis is all about you seem alive, but you are dead. The sort of undeadness of the church, which a lot of them love to make into like, oh, that's Martin Luther coming to save the world from papacy and indulgences. Um, the failure to hold on of Philadelphia 
end there. And that's sort of like, you know, the narrative up until usually they put the last one is the 19th century, the 20th century uh, lukewarmness, Laodicea, right? That you are neither hot nor cold. Christianity has become such a tepid thing uh, that it has really no purchase or urgency at all in the world. And that's a fun, I can see why that is like a very compelling way to read this text. Um, do with that what you will. In fact, I find it useful uh, in kind of the opposite way. It, it helps me remember what order they're in, right? And then like, okay, well, Pergamum is about imperial power, so that must mean it's somewhere after the martyrdom, right? Like, that's cool to me. It helps me figure these things out. Um, but some people get even more intense about this. If you love kookiness, if you love diagrams that are made by truly fascinating minds, um, and if you don't mind someone who really loves to take huge and massive dumps on Catholicism, I strongly recommend... <laughs> I recommend is what I'll say, I guess, uh, a book called, it's just an exegesis called The Book of Revelation by a person named Clarence Larkin. If you've ever seen a diagram of something from Revelation, it's probably from this book. Um, it must be out of print because my copy is just one of those awful digireads.com like print to order versions. I am getting such a hoot out of this book, guys. For example, let me just give you some um, ways he reads some of the extremely uh, normal things we've already encountered. So I've kind of given you the frame that he takes for granted in the seven churches. But like, let's think about some of the weirder things we encountered last time, for example. Remember the image of Balaam, right? Um, Balaam, a prophet who is not Jewish, who like taught kings how to seduce uh, Jewish men by using these foreign princesses and stuff. Um, so for Clarence Larkin, this is obviously a reference to the Balaamism that is Constantine seducing Christianity with the promise of imperial power. So for Larkin, Balaam is about the breakdown of the separation of church and state. Um, he even tries to make like a weird like phonic semi-rhyme on Balaam and Basilica, right? That the church is seduced by worldly power, and that's the way it was taught to be corrupted. Similarly, the way he interprets Nicolae, and by the way, I should make clear, like, he thinks that's what these are prophecies about. Um, he thinks, for example, the Nicolaitans are actually... John of Patmos foreseeing the Council of Nicaea, that the Nicolaitans will seduce the world with its promise of ecclesial might, this kind of uh, the way that bishops and church power convince the world that it, the lay community doesn't have the power to interpret for itself, right? So the Nicolaitans are the Nicene Creed, basically. Um, similarly, Jezebel is... What else could it be? It's the papal church. Larkin is kind of fascinating because he knows Revelations is misogynist, but he is also misogynist. And he's like, well, whenever we see a woman, obviously that's the whore. Obviously that's uh, the church itself, right? Um, anyway, as I say, if you have the stomach for this kind of thing, oh boy, there's a lot of great diagrams of like cows and like 
giant footed people whose feet each represent a different age of man, etc., etc. Um, okay, so what about our three churches this week? First up is Sardis. Uh, to the angel of the church in Sardis write, these are the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Again, one of the images from earlier gets picked up as being like, this is who this is from, a great little blazon of uh, Super Saiyan Jesus. I know your works, and you have a name of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is on the point of death, for I have not found your works perfect in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Obey it and repent. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. Sardis uh, and Laodicea at the end are really interesting because um, they, at no point in the reading, at no point in the letter, the individual letter, um, do they either have an external threat or any internal strife. So they neither have the kind of martyrdom we're seeing in the other letters, nor do they have um, like a Jezebel or a Balaam, someone inside the church community who John is mad at. Um, and yet their messages are entirely negative. Jesus has nothing nice to say to either of these churches. Um, it kind of tells us something interesting about John's mindset uh, about his mission, right? Like he is here to comfort the comfortless and to uh, discomfort the comfortable, right? Like that is very much a habit of mind of his, as we discussed, kind of a, a, a permanent habit of mind of apocalypses in general. Um, what's the deal with Sardis? Well, Sardis was a trading city, fertile farmland. Um, it is, uh, you, you know one of its kings because you've heard the expression rich as Croesus. Um, what, what is the line from Les Miserables? Uh, when I'm rich as Croesus, Jesus, won't I skin him to the bone or something like that? He sings about being rich as Croesus. It's like an old expression. Um, that was Sardis. Sardis was super rich, uh, but it is in decline. Its reputation has uh, is bigger than the city is itself, apparently. Seems to have been pretty much the consensus at the period. It's kind of a citadel city. It's on a hill, um, and it, uh, it was thought to be impregnable, and yet it fell twice. And it fell twice both times the same way. It fell by um, the foreign attackers, whether it was uh, Cyrus or whatever, um, dispatching small troops, in one case just one climber, in another case like 20 dudes, to scale the side of the citadel, sneak over the mountaintop of it, and open the gate from inside. Uh, when you know that, the image that Jesus chooses is uh, very interesting. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. Um, that's an image he uses a lot. I come like a thief in the night. I, that's like an idea that has become almost um, uh, rote in Christian imagery, right? But uh, here, quite applicable to a city that is being castigated for its sleepfulness, right? It's almost deadness. Um, if you conquer, again, big conquering and victory are obsessive images in this text you'll be clothed like them in white robes and you will and i will not blot out your name in the book of life i think our first reference to the book of life it will not be the last it is a te uh, this book is very obsessed with this book um it is not the first text to invent this image it is an image that um 
we see in a lot of Middle Eastern cultures. Uh, it is in Babylonian culture. It may have been the uh, Babylonian king's obsession with bookkeeping of the Jewish people that has led to this idea of a powerful king who's... I mean, we, we know this a lot, right? Like, the Doomsday Book is an idea in England, right? Like, you count... The idea that the counting of the country for tax reasons is somehow apocalyptic, right? Um, if you don't know about the Doomsday Book, look it up. They counted, like, like literally every sheep that was in every field in England. Um, anyway... I will uh, not blot out your name in the book of life. I will confess your name before my father and before his angels. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Pretty uh, familiar uh, pattern to us by now, right? Next up, we have Philadelphia. Uh, always fun when an exegete decides this is about North American Philadelphia. Definitely isn't. Um, <laughs> it is, however, the city of brotherly love. It is, I got to learn while researching for this, uh, named, and we actually don't know why, which of them, which of the two it is named after, because we don't know which of them founded it, but it's two brother kings, uh, uh, Eumenes II and Attalus II, um, known for loving each other because one was reported as dead due to an assassination attempt, uh, and the other took the, the kingship. Uh, and when his brother was still alive, he let him have it back. Very nice of him, wouldn't you say? Um, also known to not be able to be bribed to plot to assassinate each other, uh, which I guess, if you're a royal, counts as love. Uh, <laughs> uh, this one, unlike the two it's sandwiched between, actually is going through it in a bit. Um, and it's kind of fun to figure out in what way they're going through it? Okay, these are the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Um, you'll notice not really a, a phraseology that came up in the uh, opening bit, uh, and kind of... It's funny, because it is, again, one of those phrases in uh, Christian thought that we're kind of inured to um who opens and no one will shut who shuts and no one opens this is kind of uh it sounds like the language that is used for peter uh when jesus says i will give you the keys to my kingdom right on this rock shall i build my church what you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven what you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven um jesus has the keys here and the keys he has are to the house of David. Um, that is not accidental, and it kind of becomes clear why that's the image he's choosing here as we get into what is the nature of the persecutions in Philadelphia. So I'm going to read a little more, and then I'm going to backtrack and kind of explain what's going on here. I know your works. Look, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. Again, this imagery of shutting and opening. I know you have but little power, and you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews and are not but are lying, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my words of patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. Um, 
And I might get a little further just so that I have all the images on the table. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Uh, again, that's like probably an athletic crown image, right? He loves these. Philadelphia, known for its athletes. Um, if you, uh, isn't, isn't uh, Rocky from there? <laughs> uh, if you conquer, I've only been to Philadelphia once uh, for an academic conference, and I pulled something in my leg immediately so I could only limp like a half block from the conference center back to my hotel room. So my view of Philadelphia is very strange. Um, I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have. If you conquer, I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. You will never go out of it. I will write on you the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem that, come down, that comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. Let anyone who has an ear Listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. First of all, I always love a moment where Jesus renames somebody. It's a thing that comes up a lot. Uh, you'll notice there he will have a new name when he comes down from heaven. Jerusalem, as we'll see, has kind of a weird Borg cube situation where it kind of descends from the atmosphere as a giant cube in the sky. Um, actually, not an image that is unique to the revelation of John. It comes up in a few other places. Uh, that's the first time, spoiler warning, that we hear that that like, orbital descent is in our future. Um, okay, what is going on here? Because I put the whole thing on the table. House of David. Keys of the House of David. Uh, synagogue of Satan. Uh, write your name on your forehead. Um, uh, put you out of the door. It's very clear that whatever's going on in Philadelphia has something to do with the Christian community's relationship to its Jewish community. Um, I came across one uh, uh, scholar who said this is one of the most dismal images of the Book of Revelations. This idea that these people will be, don't worry, someday the people you hate, I'm going to make them kneel at your feet, right? Um but who hates who here? Uh, this is a, an image and a problem that comes that continues an idea I talked about from last time. There is a lot of scholarship that does the usual apologetics about how, like, this is John being anti-Semitic because um, the Christians have been, as we talked about in the Gospel of John, where that was manifestly the case, put out of the synagogues, right? But as we talked about last week, John of Patmos has almost the exact opposite problem. John of Patmos is, as we talked about, a Jewish thinker who believes the Jewish Messiah has come and is very displeased about all of these Pauline Christians who think they get to be Jewish now without being properly Jewish. Um, that is a thesis I am increasingly convinced by. However, uh, you can cut this the opposite way. You can make this the usual Christian anti-Semitism, that it is like, uh, don't worry, someday those Jews who you don't like are going to be made to pay for what they did to you by putting you out of the church, right? Um, you can be convinced one way or the other here as you like, but that is why the opening image is Jesus saying, I have the keys to the house of David. I will decide who is Jewish and who isn't. Thank you, is what Jesus is saying here. Um, not Paul, not uh, whoever happens to be at church that week, me. I decide. I keep the door open. I shut the door when I want to shut it. Now, this uh, language of opening and shutting is actually, as we might expect with John of Patmos, a very specific Jewish reference. Um, 
if I flip my Bible back approximately a thousand, twelve hundred pages here, back to the book of Isaiah, um, I get a great little story as Isaiah is thinking about this kind of descent in the house of David. Um, I'm going to read it to you, and you can see just how much this is on John's mind on his fingertips as he's writing this. Uh, uh, Thus says the Lord God of hosts, Come, go to this steward, to Shebna, who is master of the household, that's the royal household, the house of David, master of the household, and say to him, What right do you have here? Who are your relations here that you've cut out a tomb here for yourself, cutting a tomb on the height and carving a habitation for yourself in the rock? So what we have here is someone who works in the house of David who oughtn't to be there and has made himself a a, a place of pride in the house of David who shouldn't have done that. Is this about... Pauline Christians who have made themselves a home in Judaism they have no right to? Maybe. Maybe it's the opposite, right? Um, Let me keep reading it for you. The Lord is about to hurl you away violently, my fellow. He will seize firm hold on you, whirl you round and round, and throw you like a ball into a wide land. There you shall die, and there your splendid chariot shall lie. Oh, you disgrace to your master's house. I will thrust you from your office, and you will be pulled down from your post. On that day, I will call my servant Elikim, son of Hilkiah, and will clothe him with your robe and bind your sash on him. I will commit your authority to his hand, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. I will place on his shoulders the key of the house of David, Let me say that with a bit more emphasis. I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and no one shall shut. He shall shut and no one shall open. It's the same image. It is clearly what John is thinking about. Now, what is he thinking about? Is he thinking about, um, hey, someone is in the house of David who has no right to be. Let me replace him who it should be. Or is this, is that Paul? Or is he saying, um, these Jewish people have missed the Messiah and therefore they will be replaced with these Gentiles, the new servant, right? Maybe. I leave it up to you. Um, As I've said, he doesn't at any point even use the word Christian. I think this is, and his obsession with like dietary correctness um, I'm with Elaine Pagels and the Jewish Annotated New Testament, but I'm willing to be convinced otherwise, so we'll see as we go here. By the way, the other major image of this passage uh, also comes from Isaiah. Isaiah 60, 14. The children of your oppressor, oppressors shall come bowing before you. All those who despised you shall bow low at your feet. Again, is that an image of the Gentile children of your oppressors who now want to say they're Christian will learn you can't just call yourself Jewish, or is that uh, the opposite? It's up to you. Um, but they're obviously, even in, in the fact of them, they, they attest to John's own Jewishness, right? Um, all right, last out the gate, the church in Laodicea. Write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the origin of God's creation. Did you catch that, by the way? Again, the super high Christology. 
an extremely Johannine Christology of this book. Jesus is the origin of God's creation. He is, as the Gospel of John says, the word that was with God um, and was God at the beginning, right? Um, he is somehow the great author of being. This is the the nexus from which ideas like Paradise Lost of Jesus descending in Book 7 into the space that becomes our reality to create it, right? Um, it's all here. This is its earliest uh, canonical representation. Laodicea is maybe the funnest one. I think I'm the fondest of it. Uh, it's a really juicy one. Um, it has a line I think about a lot, a lot, a lot. Uh, to um, I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were either hot or cold. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. You don't realize you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Um, maybe before I continue, we'll talk about Laodicea. Uh, obviously, as Jesus is here saying, uh, pretty prosperous, uh, pretty doing pretty well for itself. Um, if you look at it on a map, it's at an obviously useful trading spot. It is a commercial hub. Um, it is also very interestingly located near Colossae, from which we get Paul's letter to the Colossians, right? He mentions Laodicea in it. He says there's a dude named Epa... Ugh, how do I... I've never said this word out loud. Epaphras? Epa... Epaphras. A guy named Epaphras is preaching in Laodicea. He's presumably the founder of the church we're now talking about. Um, so Colossae is nierby, and also nearby is Hierapolis. Um, it may interest you to know that Hierapolis has hot springs, most notably, and Colossae has great fresh water, whereas Laodicea, its biggest weakness, was known to be that it had no access to fresh water. So it has two cities. Literally, one is only six miles away. One is uh, 10 miles away, uh, famous for hot and cold water, and it has one viaduct that is easily blocked where the water arrives tepid. It's hard to know if these things are kind of overdetermined by history because uh, Revelations has such a deforming effect on the way Christian history is recorded. Um, but we do have pretty good evidence of those facts, and it's kind of cool the way um, John clearly knows these cities very well. And one of the ways we know he knows these cities very well is Jesus's next amazing swirl of insults. Um, he says, uh, for you say, okay, I've prospered. Therefore, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by, he tells him to buy three things. Um, and before I tell you what three things Jesus tells them to get from them, what do we know about Laodicea? Well, we know it was wealthy, has lots of gold. Um, we uh, know it is a major source of clothing and textiles in the Mediterranean basin. It is uh, so famous for the black glossiness of its wool um, that uh, we hear about it a lot in other texts. And the thing it is absolutely most famous for is manufacturing uh, Phrygian powder to use for eye salves. Galen talks about it, um, and so too does Horace. What does Jesus tell uh, 
uh, Laodicea to buy because it doesn't realize how broke it is. It tells him to buy the three things Laodicea would never think it needs. Gold, um, let me just find the passage here. Uh, gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. And robes, white robes to clothe you. They're famous for their black robes, right? Uh, to clothe you and to keep the shame of your nakedness from being seen. And eye salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. It is one of those magnificent, um, the sarcastic cruelty of it is kind of lost by time. It's been eroded. Um, Jesus is telling you, you don't even know how poor you are. You need the things you think you have most. Um, it is wonderful. It's like one of those wonderful poetic reversals John is so good at in a very caustic and unpleasant way, right? Um, I didn't even explain the lukewarmness because it feels like an image that is so familiar to me. But the, obviously the idea is like, like be something, right? <laughs> like be passionate or be frigid, but you're nothing. You're just like that very Victorian Christianity, that kind of like, high Anglican Christianity where it's like a pretty thing you all kind of believe. Are you, are you Christian or aren't you? Yeah, I guess so. Like, come on, have some convictions, please. Like, even if they're bad convictions, at least I can be mad at you for having bad convictions, but you're nothing. You can see why um, in the narratives that make this into a chronological version of Christian history, this is definitely like the 20th century, right? Like a Christianity that just kind of went to sleep and like, does it even matter anymore? Um, is the kind of, this is obviously a lot of these exegetes are writing before uh, recent decades intensities, I guess we can call it. One thing I should mention is uh, the fact that Laodicea is talked about as being so prosperous uh, and so at ease that it doesn't even seem to really need its Christianity is actually really useful for us for dating um, when this uh, text is written. Because Laodicea is actually absolutely devastated by an earthquake in 60 CE. Um, and that earthquake is so notable to the Romans because several historical records talk about how Laodicea refused to let itself be declared a disaster zone and refused Roman aid to rebuild. Um, it financed its own uh, restoration project uh, with its own money without taking like Roman tax breaks or anything like that. That's crazy and the romans talked about it as being crazy and they did it so fast it's already prosperous again by whenever john is writing so if you're going to do a timeline for uh the 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 creation of this book you have to, one of the big things you have to factor in is actually the decimation and full reconstruction of laodicea it has to be at the time this book is written prosperous enough for john to be mad at it in precisely this way right um and the text ends with an image that is familiar to Christians, I think, and this is actually its source. Um, so weird that I actually took a minute to make sure that's true. Listen, I am standing at the door, knocking. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come into you and eat with you, and you with me. Um, wild image, right? Like, there's that, obviously, the Holman Hunt painting I've talked about before called Light of the World, where... Jesus is knocking at a door that has no door handle. Like, it can only be opened from the inside. It's very bloodborne. Um, but this is where it's from, right? Like the the knock, seek, 
anyone who not but what is the the matthew thing um seek and you shall find knock and the door shall be opened unto you here reversed jesus is pounding at the door it is a great apocalyptic image to it uh obsessed and ends with the very familiar by now image to us of conquering to the one who conquers i will give a place with me on my throne, just as I myself conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. And a fun little game of heavenly musical chairs, it sounds like. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And that's the seven churches, everybody. Way more fascinating, actually, than I ever imagined they were going to be. Um, I hope you had as much fun with them as I did. I am going to turn over to the Patreon and tackle the reader comments, which, as always, are incredibly fascinating and useful to me. Um, and I hope you'll join us there at patreon.com slash Koopa, where you can also read and listen to, you know, Paradise Lost, Paradise Regained, um, uh, Gospel of Mark, Gospel of John, Letters of John, whatever. Um, and otherwise, next week, things get incredibly insane. Uh, thank you so much. Be brave enough to be kind. Bye-bye.